Welcome to a special edition of the Listening Party podcast for July 3rd, 2020. I'm your host, Rebecca Haas, the Director of Community Engagement. Today's podcast is part of our new initiative. It's called For All to Hear. For All to Hear will feature varied programming which will be dictated by the artists who offer submissions. These are artists who identify as Indigenous, Black, or as people of colour. Pacific Opera wants to offer a space to artists to speak directly because we want to change, and we want the world to change after George Floyd. In the words of Timothy Vernon, the founder and the artistic director of Pacific Opera, if that is to happen, we know it must come from the communication of truths, even the hardest truths, and that is what art and artists can do with unequaled directness. Prithi Gandhi was born in Bombay, India. She identifies as an Indian American. Having had a long career as a soprano in the operatic field, she is currently the Chief Artistic Officer of Minnesota Opera. Here she is, in her own words, speaking to her experience. What was it like to live in Minneapolis after the death of George Floyd? To be in the center of it and witnessing how it's affected the community, there's been a lot of a lot more violence and unrest since that all happened. So much stirred up energy, and um, that's frightening to live in. But also to see how a an event like that radiates and ripples outward so dramatically and affects so many other levels of living, and how important it is for the outside world to see and understand and have empathy for that, to know that it's not just about this. It's about the quality of life for all of us. People who say, well, that doesn't affect me. They're so wrong. They're so wrong on so many levels. It does affect them. They just don't realize how. And I think that experiencing what so many have gone through in their lives with that kind of living, living while black, walking while black, and just to get a tiny taste of feeling unsafe was so humbling for me. And, and, and I don't ever want to go back to being so ignorant as to not understand why it's important for all of us to do our work in that mission together. After the killing happened um, and there were days of some protests and riots and actually my neighborhood was, this, was very subject, to, was subject to a lot of the damage and my post office burned down. <laughs> and um, it, it, was, it was frightening because I've grown up very sheltered and very privileged. And uh, I had never experienced that kind of fear before where I wondered, should I leave my neighborhood tonight? Am I safe here? And um, it, it gave me a window into what some people are experiencing every day. And that was very, very humbling to, as I told a friend of mine, I feel like such a pastry puff. You know, there's so many, so many ways in which I haven't experienced this kind of fear. We didn't put out a statement right away. Um, our incoming vice chair, uh, Nadej Souvenir, she is a black and we have some employees on staff who are black and they they asked us to wait so that we could talk as a company about how we wanted to move forward and what we wanted to do. So the Tuesday after it happened, I believe, that was almost a week later, we closed the company for a day of service to the community in whatever way we felt we wanted to, whether it was signing petitions, looking up new resources to read, joining protests or marches, donating to the communities that had been hard hit by the riots. Everybody chose their own ways in which they wanted to contribute. And it was it was so good for us to be a part of something proactive as a, as a company together in a shared mission. And then we released the statement after that and, and saying, these are the resources we're looking at as a company. We invite you to do the same. You'll hear more from Prithi later in the podcast. This has been a time of protests. 
It's a time when protests demanded action and a time when a statement is not enough. And those stepping forward aren't the usual suspects. Beyond corporate institutions, arts organizations, including offer companies, are asking themselves, what changes do they need to make? How are we part of the systemic problem of racism? In the podcast today, you will hear two voices, both with their response to this moment in time. And while they have different origin stories and different lived experiences, you will hear common themes. First, I'd like to share with you my conversation with Samuel Chan. Sam is a baritone and a recent graduate from the Canadian Opera Company Ensemble. I had worked with Sam in my role as a mentor during his time at the COC. At the height of the protests, I happened to read one of his posts on Facebook. With Sam's permission, I'd like to share it with you. Fellow singers of colour, I am curious to hear from you how you've been processing the past week. My mental health has been suffering from a lot of inner turmoil and I don't know how to handle the onslaught of emotions constantly heading my way. I've been feeling so much guilt for the times I haven't spoken up when I should have, especially for my black colleagues. I'm feeling sorry for the times I self-edited what I think, say, as to not upset. I'm feeling angry for the times I've allowed myself to be taken advantage of by a white business that picks and chooses which persons of color they decide to promote. I've been feeling horrible knowing that any previous silence on this matter on my end has allowed for this onslaught of racism that permeates our business to go unheard. I haven't been sleeping well because the root of the problem is this. We're in a business that has forced so many of us to keep our mouths shut, self-edit, how we're perceived, so as not to offend the white majority, aka the people who run the hiring process, the people who determine if you may have a career. How have you been coping? Are you doing all right? Samuel is my first guest today on the podcast, and you can also hear and see a short interview and a wonderful lullaby from his culture on Acoustic Afternoons on July 10th and on demand after that. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know that I ask people to introduce themselves. But in this case, I had something else I had to address. What do I call him? Identity is something now that we're often all very frightened to enter into. One of the things I have learned over the last few years in my work in community is the best thing to do is admit you don't know and ask. And so I did. What should I call you? That's a great question because this is something that it differs on every person, like um, where they come from. A lot of people right. insist on being called Chinese Canadian, Japanese okay. Canadian, Korean Canadian. Right, right, right. I am a second generation of already Chinese immigrants. So I like to say um, Singaporean Chinese Canadian. And the reason That's I say helpful. that is, yeah, because my parents are the children of immigrants from China to Singapore due to colonialism. So colonialism, unfortunately, is a long story in our family history. <laughs> Before Sam shares his experiences of facing systemic racism as a singer, he wanted to share this story to help explain the ground that is laid for a person of color about how to behave and how to cope in a predominantly white society. Sam grew up in Calgary, very culturally aware of who he was. He had the traditions of his grandparents, and he was taught a grounding in Confucius philosophy. The tradition of respect was a core teaching in his home. But of course, 
life outside his home, at school, was very different. When I went to school, I was maybe one of two people in my class who were not of the majority. For me, the first experience I had with racism in school was unfortunately in first grade. And I think it again comes to what families teach your children at home. And I don't mean to criticize, I just mean to kind of bring to light. The experience that I unfortunately had to deal with was actually one that had to deal with what I brought for lunch. This story is not um, uncommon. I've heard this from many people of ethnic descent in schools, maybe from Asia or from Africa, etc. So I brought some food that my parents had cooked, one of my favorite dishes, which is a the way my father cooks fried rice. Um, to this day, it's a comfort food, something that I crave when I'm at home. Um, but I brought this to school with a few other dishes. I think there was a, a small little fish thing alongside it. But when my lunch came out, every person sitting next to me in school went, ew, that looks so gross. Are you guys eating lice that goes in your hair? It just made me feel awful. And it didn't, and it wasn't just one day, it was multiple days. Um, of my own food being made fun of and it got to a point where I just didn't eat. I, I begged my parents to pack me a Canadian lunch and I feel awful saying that now being um, Singaporean Chinese Canadian with our food. So the food in a way is an extension of our identity and to ask them to not make that because I was being made fun of and I just didn't eat. I didn't want to bring that food to lunch. And I begged my parents to pack me a white lunch. I wanted sandwiches. I wanted to fit in, bring Oreos in a bag kind of thing. I think in school, I definitely said things and tried to fit in in a way that kind of downplayed the cultural identity things. Uh, for example, um, I have a Chinese name that I did not feel comfortable saying because I was also made fun of that name growing up. So my Chinese name is Chen Bing An, but until recently, I never used it. And sorry, I get a little sad thinking about that, that I was ashamed to even use something that was legally in my passport. It is just so sad that that name, like now when I say it out loud, I feel so proud to say, but up till recently, it was such a scary thing to bring up. I want to jump into, mm -hmm. um, since we've talked about these barriers growing up, you now, mm -hmm. of course, have chosen a career that mm -hmm. is very Eurocentric, right? Often yes. <laughs> Europe, uh, we pretty much sing, I would say like, obviously the canon is varied, but the, basically what most people will recognize are European composers and librettists who have written all these pieces that are also bringing mm -hmm. a particular idea forward. We are at a time now when we want to see the stage mm -hmm. represent our communities. And so the stage now needs to be diverse, even though the mm -hmm. art form did not originate in that place. <laughs> um, I would love to hear you speak a little bit about your experience. I mean, you're an adult now, mm -hmm. but as a person who is not the majority, I'm guessing in the rehearsal room, maybe you can tell me about some of the unique challenges or obstacles you've faced professionally. I think um, our business is trying to evolve, but I, from my personal experience, the, the traditions don't often support the voices of artists who are not of the majority. So I have personally witnessed in my rehearsal rooms being 
somebody who is of color, things that maybe other people won't notice. Um, I've worked with singers who don't speak English, but speak French or speak German. And in a rehearsal room, we can all converse in that way to sort of create a product. For a lot of singers from Asia and from Africa specifically, that is a very different experience and it's a very hard experience. Um, I have witnessed uh, conductors almost ostracize or criticize one of those performers in a rehearsal room because they're very, they have a hard time communicating what they're trying to say. I've seen the, how um, the impatience with language barrier can bar successful um, respect from happening in a rehearsal room. And that's just one example. I think another example is for me personally is how watching the subconscious treatment of individuals of color in a rehearsal room where they, they almost kind of instill this sense of you should feel grateful for being here. Um, I've had something said to me in the past that are along those lines by directors, by conductors, and it just fills me with rage because why do people of color have to get comments like that, but then people of the majority don't get similar comments. And I think that also deals with the pressure a lot of artists of color feel to succeed once you get to the professional level, which is, I don't know how to say this kindly, but I'm gonna say it, I think as nicely as possible. For a lot of us who are persons of color, we definitely feel a huge pressure to show up with your music learned, completely memorized, in your body, ready to go at a level that is so high that no one can criticize your work. And I have witnessed how that pressure does instill itself on us in the rehearsal room by other people, but that people of the majority often don't have that same level of pressure yet get away with less preparation and or less um, respectful view of their work within the environment and somehow still manage to keep working in that environment and don't get called out for that type of criticism. It saddens me that we have this gap in perception within a rehearsal room where the people of color always feel this pressure all the time to constantly be grateful, to feel like, don't you feel blessed to be here? A lot of my fellow artists of, of um, color, a lot of my fellow BIPOC artists can say this, that they've all experienced a very similar feeling in a rehearsal room. One comment I, I've gotten very recently that really bothers me um, was a comment that was along the lines of, for, wow, you are so expressive, especially since you're of an Asian descent. And that just, I have been getting that for years it drives me absolutely crazy. The stereotype of being a perfectionist when it comes to technique but non-emotive is so damaging to any artist of Asian descent because it is a stereotype that we hear our entire careers. And to even get that recently in a rehearsal room, like it just filled me with rage. That comment, that you act well despite your ethnic background, got us talking about the upper turn dot. We had a long conversation about that opera and Madame Butterfly and why these operas are problematic for the Asian community. This is a conversation I have a lot recently, um, especially that of Madame Butterfly, because a lot of people don't know that Madame Butterfly is based on a novel called Madame Chrysanthemum, 
And that novel is now treated as a museum piece of how European perception of Asian culture is misconstrued. I mean, I don't mean to criticize Madama Butterfly because here's the thing, musically speaking, I cannot criticize a lot of the moments, but in terms of its message, I do have very strong criticism for the fact that it is a piece about a Japanese woman being taken advantage of within a colonial system. She kills herself believing that her son is going to have a better future with the white family. To me, that is such a misconstrued view of one Japanese culture and Asian culture, but it's also a misconstrued view of women. And I will also say, I'm very emotional on this subject because the first opera I ever saw was Calgary Opera's production of Turandot in the early to mid 2000s. And not one person except for my colleague, Jean Wu as the Mandarin on stage was Chinese. And that to this date has never left my mind. We don't have a lot of diversity. Um, mm -hmm. And so knowing that you came to singing through the piano, did you have anyone who looked like you, who inspired you to be a singer? I mean, it's difficult, it's difficult enough to think a classical music career is possible, mm -hmm. let alone if you don't see anyone that makes you feel like, oh, they do it so I can do it. Oprah very famously has talked about uh, Uhura on uh, Star Trek, mm -hmm. right? Saying to her, yes. oh, there's a black woman on television. This could be mm -hmm. me. Have you mm -hmm. had anyone like that who's inspired you that helped you? That is a very good question because to be honest, in my journey in classical music, very few Asian singers have ever come up into the quote unquote historical um, part of my education. And that means the recordings I've listened to in the past. You, you know, we have this joke in the, uh, like amongst other Asian Canadian and Asian American singers is that like besides Sumi Jo, who else is there on the world, st on the world stage? And one person that has inspired me a lot is the um, leader singer uh, Mitsuko Shirai in Japan. A lot of people don't know about her, but Mitsuko Shirai is one, in my opinion, one of the great interpreters of leader. I should also preface that I didn't. I wanted to come into singing because my piano background brought me to leader. And leader was what, and art song was what kind of launched my love for classical singing. You're, you're marrying four art forms, poetry, pianistic um, excellence, and vocal excellence all into one art form. So when I started discovering leader singers, of course, I was obsessed with Die Scal, obsessed with Matthias Gerner, obsessed with um, Helmut Deutsch as a pianist. Um, uh, Malcolm Martineau is a, I'm a big fan of. But Mitsuko Shirai was the first Asian singer that I heard sing leader, and I listened to her like all day. I was obsessed. Mitsuko's German diction is just absolutely impeccable, and I was just like, who is this person? So she's one big inspiration for myself. And then another inspiration is the Korean soprano He Kyung Hong, who for many in the opera world, they know as this singer who somehow manages to replace the great sopranos at the Met all the time, but always gets better critical reception. Hmm. The fact that she's not a household name in the opera world the way that Sumi Jo is, is a, to me um, a travesty because, you know, at the Met Opera in New York, she's kind of the go-to soprano to replace singers when they get sick or when they can't perform a role. Like one of my favorite stories is when she went on for Natalie Dusse in Traviata 
And um, this was after she lost her husband. And, um, you know, she's a single mom raising her kids in New York as an immigrant herself, then somehow managing to just go on stage and not only knock it out of the park, but the reviews were just like, how come she didn't headline the show in the beginning? Without her, I don't think I would have seen an Asian singer or on, on, um, on an American main stage of that level. Her and Kathleen Kim are the two that I always um, hearken to, but I mean, Kathleen Kim is very recent. See, growing up, it was pretty much Sumi Jo and no one else. And then Hei Kyung Hong kind of sprinkled in between there. The question of how to create more diversity on stage is one that the opera world talks about a lot these days. As you can hear from Sam, it's really important to the next generation of artists to see themselves reflected on the stage. As a singer, and finding himself often to be the only person of color in a cast, I asked him what he thinks needs to happen to change this. He was quick to answer. He has a question for opera companies. Do you actually hold, you know, non-biased auditions in your city? Are you holding auditions that allow people of any background to come up forward? Because this is not just an issue for BIPOC representation. This is also, also an issue for human representation. I, I say that because so few singers who are disabled have been on operatic main stages. And one of my big heroes in music is Thomas Kvasthoff. And he himself is a, probably one of the greatest leader singers of his generation. But imagine what that voice would have been like on a theatrical stage if he was given productions to be in that allowed him to be seen, not just, you know, a voice that you listen to. The conversation that you're listening to really came out of Sam's Facebook post, which I shared at the start of this podcast. I asked Sam, how did the murder of George Floyd impact him? As a person of color, what I found so difficult was the guilt that I felt internalized from the lack of speaking up in the past about how race relations affects all of us. Because something that I spoke to with a lot of my colleagues over the past few weeks, oh, and I should preface that these conversations came up from all of us feeling the same way and reaching out to each other to talk about these issues. One of the big things that kind of stuck out is that we all felt a sense of guilt that we did not speak up beforehand and that the self-editing and the self-evaluating of everything you say in a white space affects how, you're, how you are perceived and how you can maintain employment through safety. And what that means is that you're saying things and not saying things to maintain work. And that unfortunately has become a very big part of keeping safe in our business because a lot of things that we hear out loud, we don't respond to because we're afraid to be criticized and not be employed back because we're so replaceable. I think this is a huge dichotomy that our own business is having, which is that I hear people now say, how come you never said this beforehand? And I honestly say, I never felt safe to because from the minute you start working this business, you are told all the time you are replaceable. You are always told that if you can't live up to the 150% expectation in the rehearsal room, someone else is gonna come along and take that job from you. And for people of color, for all BIPOC people, I think that sense of I've gotten here, I have the job now, I get to work here. 
again, it ties into the don't you feel grateful for being here mentality. You're so afraid to lose it because there's so few of you working there and you don't want to crush the possibility that you could get even further on in your, in your job um, through staying silent. And that's the problem because when this started happening, a lot of colleagues I spoke to, colleagues of African descent, colleagues of Asian descent, we all kind of said the same thing. We feel so guilty for not speaking up when we should have in the past because all of us have allowed um, racist behavior or a biased behavior to happen in front of us. And to not say um, what we saw means that we got to almost keep our jobs by um, keeping complicit and pleasing the white majority with how we act in the rehearsal space. So for me, when George Floyd happened, it not only affected my work and how I perceive my work, it affected how I see our culture because it just confirmed to me that no matter how far we say we've gotten, we haven't gotten as far as we think we have. I think as an artist working in our business specifically, it is my job now, and it, it should have always been my job, but it really is my job now to tell the stories of the people who are of our time. If we as artists take ownership of telling the stories of our humanity now, and that also means taking into account what not to perform, it will give us all a more ecumenical artistic workspace. And this is something that I believe that all arts people can take into account is that if you want to present a work of art or you want to present a work of art that is very activist centered, that work of art should be created and presented by the artists directly affected by the situation they're active, that they're advocating for. Within our standard repertoire, we do need more people of um, many ethnic backgrounds to be on stage in the roles that you know, we celebrate like Rosina in Barbara Seville or Susanna in Mary de Figaro because those roles, if they're, imagine the impact you would have on young people if they got to see somebody on stage who looked just like them in a leading role. You know, it would change their lives. I grew up unfortunately never seeing that and, I'm, and we're also in a culture that still in many ways tells specifically Asian men that they're not, um, they're not visually a good representation of a romantic lead on stage. I know that that is something that has recently been brought to light in the cinema world, but it is a, same, it is a very similar issue in our world. Um, there, are, there are people who still tell Asian men that they will not ever play leading roles on stage because of how they look. You know, something that my own relatives have said is that when I decided to go into this world, a lot of them were like, why do you want to go into this world? You're Asian, you're not, you don't belong there. You know, this is a cultural problem is that a lot of people of color are afraid to even go see a show because they feel uncomfortable in an audience of people that one, don't look like them, but are, but two, are of a social status in which they feel inadequate, uncomfortable, and or not a part of. This current generation of singer, my generation, and the generation right above me, we are so aware that this is important. We are so aware that this is the starting point to true change in our business. And if we start here, imagine how much further we could go with how we see race, we see ethnicity, we see culture in Western opera. After all that we talked about, Sam is hopeful. He feels he can go into an audition these days 
and sing a traditional Singaporean song. He can pick and choose what he's willing to do on stage. And he does believe that his voice is being heard. I was sensitive to the fact that speaking out, even in this podcast, might be a risk for Samuel professionally. I am very grateful to Sam for his bravery to speak out about his personal experience and give a sense of how it's felt to him to be in the minority. A singer is very low in the power grid. Real change will come from representation of diverse voices in positions of power, not just on the stage. So, to really talk about this, I'm very lucky that my next guest is someone who is much higher up the food chain. Hello, my name is Preeti Gandhi. I'm currently the Chief Artistic Officer at Minnesota Opera. Uh, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I'm originally born in Bombay, India. Now, of course, we call it Mumbai. I grew up knowing it as Bombay. Um, I moved to the States when I was just a baby and uh, grew up for most of my life in Southern California. I identify as Indian American, I would say. I know a lot of people also group us in the category of Asian, but I would say I identify most closely with Indian American. Um, I grew up in a very traditional Indian family and uh, opera was not on my radar at all. She did have a long career as a singer, but later turned to arts administration. At the time, she thought it was just for a few years. As she said to me, a chance to maybe have a health plan, but that's not what's happened. But my almost five years as artistic administrator of my home company showed me that I suddenly had a a chance to um, affect the business in a way that I didn't get to do as a singer. Of course, as a singer, there's so many ways we affect the business. But as an administrator, I suddenly realized I can advocate for the singer on this side of the desk in a way that I couldn't do before. I have a much bigger platform and way to do it that might make more lasting change in my own small way. And I'm, I'm really passionate about that. Uh, singers are at the bottom of the ladder in the power structure so much in this industry. And I felt that so much personally, of course, in witnessing that and in our travels. Being one of maybe two Indian Americans in the opera field in America that I knew of, um, I also felt very lonely in my past in terms of the support I got from my own culture and who I could relate to. Both Sam and Priti have similar stories. One of the barriers to seeing diversity on our stages in opera is that for families that are recent immigrants to North America, there's an expectation of a better life. And that doesn't tend to look like a career as a musician. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm going to tell you that, yeah, my parents had a mild heart attack in the beginning and we had a lot of long arguments about my choice of path they, they, what they weren't familiar with it it really went along it really went against the the, the the ingrained doctor lawyer engineer kind of path of so many Indian families education is so important and I love my parents for pressing education and higher education on us and making us study and being slightly tiger parents about it all and it's one of the reasons I was in piano and now I realize that they hadn't put me in piano lessons at the age of six I would never have become an opera singer. So in a way, they're inadvertently responsible <laughs> for me becoming an opera singer and moving into that field. Um, but no, when I when I decided to quit my job at the radio station and move back home and tell them that I wanted to pursue opera full-time, it was not an easy path for me. Did she have any Indian singers to look to for inspiration? In, in America, I, I had not met any other Indian opera singers. I, I, like, I think I knew of two in the field, and that was pretty much it. In terms of not really seeing people in my culture and my field, sometimes... Sometimes it felt like a burden and it felt lonely and sometimes it almost felt liberating in a strange way because I had always felt a little bit like uh, an alien in my, 
in my Indianness and Americanness and trying to figure out where I fit in. I had a very traditional Indian upbringing and home, and then I would go to school and I would try to be an American kid. And so many people who grew up in split cultures, especially in a first generation family, I, I'm first generation. I was born there, even though I grew up here. Um, you never really feel like you fit in anywhere. And suddenly in opera, I, I suddenly felt like I had found my tribe in a way, because it didn't matter that I was Indian or American. It, what mattered was, did I sing well? Did I have a good vocal technique? That could I speak the language as well? Did I know how to emote? Um, that was the shared language. And so on one level, yes, and we can talk about that later, the color of my skin did become an issue later. Um, cultural issues did become an issue later. But in the beginning, what I was thrilled about was finding the shared language of being an artist that I felt bonded me to this new tribe. Voice and hard work and talent opened up the magical world of opera for Prithi. Did the color of her skin make a difference? Sam is told that an Asian man can't be a romantic lead. And so I wondered, what is an Indian American told? I did get cast in a few things where, where my culture is, my, my identity as an Indian woman, I would get a lot of jokes and sexual harassment jokes about the over-sexualization of someone from my culture in the kinds of roles that I was playing. Uh, I'm sorry to be so obscure. I just don't want to give anything away, right? <laughs> But it was interesting how you heard those comments and you didn't know how to combat it. You didn't know how to respond to it. So you just absorbed it. And as you move through the field, all of those things start to build up in your consciousness to a point where suddenly one day you're paralyzed and you don't even know how to respond because you don't realize you've absorbed all those messages for so many years. Um, yeah. Prithi spoke so passionately to me about her love of music and her joy of being in the rehearsal room and her burgeoning career that she didn't think in the beginning she really clocked whether or not she was experiencing racism. The art was everything for a while. As I went along, it got more comfortable. I started to notice more. Um, that might be a surprise answer, but that's absolutely the truth of how it happened. And... Um, and being Indian in itself was different. I, I would say that I did not have perhaps the same experiences as my black colleagues, my Asian colleagues. I mean, it was very, there's def definitely different biases associated with who we are. Um, I would get exoticized a lot. And, and I think it created more sexual harassment in my career. Maybe I don't wanna com be comparative. I'm guessing maybe that contributed. I don't know. I was struck by how much Prithi's experience sounded like Sam's. Trying to normalize something that I feel probably wasn't normal, that she actually questions her experience. Was it harassment? Sam's cultural trope was the ice princess, that as an Asian, he would be cold and emotionless. Prithi's experience seems to be the racial perception of the world of the exotic East and Bollywood. She is no longer in the performance world. So I wonder, what's her world like now? Opera administration in America is very, very white and male at the top. And, and I'm so happy to see the women's movement in opera increasing its strength because, my gosh, we need so many more of us up there to help create a better atmosphere for women in this business. And for people of color as well, we need to change so many things about how we are casting the lens by which we look at the operatic canon and how we're going to retell those stories 
how we're going to tell new stories, which Minnesota Opera is very active about talking about and pursuing. Um, and that's something that's been a big focus since I got here, not just because of me, but because the company was already doing that work. And it, it's exciting to be part of that movement. At the same time, it, I feel a lot of pressure sometimes. And it's very daunting because all I can do is be me. <laughs> I, I know the kinds of things that I wanted to change coming in. I wanted to make a better environment for singers in an opera house. I wanted to advocate for singers as best as I could against the system whenever I could. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to talk about authenticity in the rehearsal room and in leadership and administration. I, I wanted to bring whatever it is I could, if it's egotistical of me to think I can bring change. I know those few things that I'm very passionate about and I try to remember those things every day. Um, as a singer, as I went along, I did notice that I would get comments about, well, we really wanted a white person for this role, or we really wanted a blonde person for this role. That actually got said to me at the auditions. And, um, and I remember thinking, well, that really sucks because if you're casting ethnically correctly in opera, then I'm only ever gonna sing the servant Malika and Lakme for the rest of my life. And really nobody produces that that often, so I wouldn't have an opera career if we did that. I, I want to sing the roles that would go to white Europeans. Why should it matter that I'm a brown Indian? Is she hopeful for the future? Let me say this. I feel hopeful because I see new faces coming into the industry. I see new faces coming into leadership. I see really strong opinions being expressed on social media that wouldn't have been expressed 10 years ago with regards to the operatic form in our lens. And that, that part I feel hopeful about. That's exciting because people feel much freer to speak up now because they know it's the time for change. So with that in mind, I think that I wanna ask, um, what would you wanna to say to a young person, black, indigenous, person of color, who's looking at a form like opera and wondering if there's space for them? Is this a, is this a good time to come? Oh, yes, absolutely. I actually love that question because I, I'm the perfect example. I didn't grow up with opera. I didn't understand anything about opera. I had all the old stereotypes. I come from a family and a culture that didn't embrace it. And I fell in love with it because of the kinesthetic experience of singing and the beauty of the art form. If I can fall in love with that, not knowing what I was singing about or listening to and not really knowing a damn thing about the art form itself, absolutely there is space because it's, the music speaks to our souls and it, and it moves something deeper than even our shared experience. It moves something deeper than our lived experience. And people who didn't grow up with it, aren't used to it, and feel like it might not be their world, I want to tell them, you're the kind of person we need in the opera world, so we can open it up for more people. We need people like you to come in and bring your perspective. You don't have to conform to us. We need to listen to what you have to say. And then how do we bring that into our shared space so that we create something even more beautiful together? Thank you, Pretty, for so passionately expressing that idea. It's time to listen to what others have to say, and then to take action. I want to thank Pretty and Sam for speaking with me so frankly and so generously, sharing their personal lived experiences of what it is to be someone who is a Singaporean Canadian and an Indian American working in the operatic field. After having these conversations, I look forward to hearing all our voices on stage and off, in performance, in creative spaces where work is made, and in administration, in our offices and boardrooms. 
our art form and our community can only benefit by moving to inclusivity. Please check out our website to listen to more artist responses as part of our For All to Hear program initiative. And as a side note, this will be the last podcast until September. We're taking August to create our new online fall programming in this COVID world we all find ourselves in. Until that time, have a safe, healthy summer. And I'll be back with you in September. I'm Rebecca Haas for Pacific Opera Victoria. Thanks for listening.